Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, very excited about this edition of Holding Court because uh, he and I have been going back and forth. Well, we've been going back and forth for many, many years, but not on this particular topic, which is his best-selling book, which just came out in the last couple of weeks, uh, called The Master, uh, about Roger Federer. That's the one and only Christopher Clary, who is a good friend of mine, a good cohort in the tennis world, someone that usually it's you, Chris, asking me the questions through all your years writing for the New York Times. I know you've been doing a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews about Roger in your book. First of all, congrats on the enormous success it's had already, and welcome to the show. Patrick, thank you. This is a big role reversal, no doubt. <laughs> After all these years of me calling you on deadline. But no, it's been it's been amazing. I, unexpected to see that kind of success the book has had. I think the timing has been good just because you know Roger appears to be nearing the end. I think people want to look back and appreciate what he's done. And, and the book, I hope, is a pretty complete you know, and, and fair look at, at his legacy and all the things that he's done in tennis. Well, I mean, you went back with him, you know, back 20 years when you saw him first play his first ever match at, uh, at Roland Garros. But I, I, I want to ask you when you had the idea to do this book and then how long did it take you to, you know, negotiate, whether it's negotiate with Roger, with his team and sort of put all the, the pieces in place? Because I know it's been at least a few years since you just started working on it. But when did this uh, sort of come to pass in your own head? OK, this is something I want to do. Well, to be honest, I never, you know, wanted to write this book too soon. I just felt like, you know, the guy kept surprising us. He has all through his career in terms of being able to last longer and be relevant longer than, you know, almost any other athlete. And so it seemed like it was really important not to uh, to write this too early. Mm-hmm. So I was really, and I started thinking about it more as time went on because I realized, you know, we're really at a, in a, in a turning point for, I think, media and, and sports in a lot of ways because, you know, generally in the past, when you started out in your career, if an athlete wanted to make an impact with the public, they would, you know, talk to a journalist. Right. They would uh, speak with a sports writer, somebody they trusted and respected, and they'd have a, an exchange and a story would be written or a, a show would be produced. Obviously, in the last few years with social media, there's now a direct line for athletes uh, to their public, and especially for superstar athletes like Roger. So I, I get the sense as time went on that the experience I'd had you know, for a variety of reasons through the years, you know, all of them due to the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune, which is why I got the access. But um, the kind of access I had to Roger was really unusual and really uh, in-depth and in a lot of different places. And I just started to realize that this is, you know, getting harder and harder for this kind of thing to happen. Mm. And I thought it was really important to uh, to record it. And I also felt like not just Roger, but this whole era, as you know very well, in men's tennis has been just extraordinary. I started out, covering in my, my career coincided really with you guys when I started out as a, as a sports writer, you guys as a generation and then the Sampras and Agassi and, and Courier and all those guys and tennis. And I, I kind of felt like I started at the top, to be honest with you, being, getting a chance to be part of that and had a ringside seat to that era all the way through. But then I realized as uh, the big three, big four, whatever you want to call it, era continued that 
this was in some ways better just in terms of just the consistency and the rivalries and the, the week-to-week interest the sport was generating. And I really wanted to record it because I knew it was a special time in the sport, really in sports in general. These really uh, these personalities are exceptional. They're global. My life, because my wife being French and my own background was very global. And um, I just felt like it was something I would really regret if I didn't make an effort to, uh, to try to capture it while it was still pretty fresh in my mind. And I felt like after uh, the 2019 season when Roger King close at Wimbledon didn't make it, and then he had the knee surgeries at the end of 2020 or beginning of 2020, it just felt like his main body of work, Patrick, seemed like to me it was done, and it was a fair and a good time to do the book. I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you just based on what you just said, but uh, I, I, the one thing that just strikes me, and I, I want to get into it a little further, is because... A, you're right about the fact that social media and, and individual platforms has sort of changed the dynamic, not just for tennis players, but for not even just for athletes, but for actors or, you know, famous people um, and so on. But it, it, it seems to me and sort of, you know, just kind of seeing what's happened even in the tennis world in the last few months, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not such a great thing. I mean, you know, like the fact that, you know, I always liked the fact that, I mean, I wasn't a, a superstar tennis player, obviously, but, you know, the, the idea that you could have somebody you could talk to that was in the media, that was in the press, someone you respected, and obviously you had that to a, a large degree with Roger. And I'm, I actually find it a little worrisome that these athletes maybe don't, and particularly tennis players who are so, can be completely uh, isolated. Right, they don't have to deal with 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 teams. They don't have to deal with with coaches, with general managers, with ownership, and 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 it worries me. And it sounds like it worries you a little bit too. Well, I, I find it. I think it's a pity on a lot of levels. I think um, basically, what are journalists? Journalists attempting to get at the truth. That's that's your goal. You, you know, often you don't get there. You try your best to get as close as you can. You do it through established means, and you're, you've been trained to try to search for that truth. But you're also trying, you're trying to be fair. And let's face it, I mean, a lot of times uh, now, journalists and, and athletes are so isolated from each other, it's very hard to develop trust. Mm. And so stories that should be told are often not told, I don't think, anymore, because people just don't have that trust in a journalist to tell them correctly. And they feel like whatever they want to get out to the public, they should do it through their own direct channels. And I understand that, that tendency, and that, that's not going to change. But I do feel like, let's face it, if you're putting out your truth to the public, you're going to go through a pretty narrow lens. You're going to keep the topics to a pretty narrow number and you're going to give one perspective on it. So I think, you know, the journalist role uh, as a emissary of the public and as somebody who's able to uh, try to get the closest as they can to that truth, I think that plays a super important role in society beyond sports. Let's forget about sports. I think it plays a very important role in democracy, frankly. Yeah, no kidding. And I think, I think, and I think over time, I, mean, I remember when I covered your generation, there was a back and forth. And I knew if I wrote something very negative, mm-hmm. which might, you know, be necessary. I would need to look at you, you know, face to face again down the road, you know, in the locker room or on the tour or whatever it would be, or Sampras or Career or Agassi or any of those guys. If I was going to think it was important enough for me to go negative and write a negative piece that had important information in it, I better be pretty sure of that information and I better feel it was worth it. And I think there's a, a natural sort of give and take that goes on between journalists who cover a beat and the athletes that they cover. And I think that's sort of, in a way, a very democratic process. And I think the situation now, the way it's been established, there is so much distance now and so little true access, and it's so managed and often overseen by handlers, everybody else as it's going on. And there are stipulations that we at the New York Times do not take part in, which 
also reduces our access sometimes, even though the paper has a lot of reach. We can't agree anything beforehand. And this book, just to be clear, the book itself was not written with Roger. Uh, the book is based on right. all these interviews through the years, more than 20. He's aware that I was doing it. I told him. Um, Tony Gadsick, his agent, was aware as well. But they, you know, they weren't going to cooperate, and I wouldn't have been allowed to cooperate with him either. So the book is really an independent book in every way. And um, personally, I'm, I'm proud of that, and I feel like that's important that their books are written that way because it's becoming harder and harder to do. Yeah, I guess I guess you could say there's there's a lot more access, but maybe there's a lot less truth, you know, in in what's out there. And and what what would what would you say was the the most surprising truth about Roger Federer that maybe you didn't know? Well, you know what? The era, era that, I, that I really didn't know much about as a journalist was that 1998 to 2003 period, that sort of five-year period in which he really became the champion in that sense, and that he really you know went from Wimbledon Junior Champ, which we both know is no guarantee of great success on tour, to uh, Wimbledon Champion for real in 2003. And that whole period is, I think, super rich and super instructive. And I honestly didn't know much about the sports psychologist he worked with. I didn't know much about um, how much he had to work on himself and his emotional control and his ability to uh, get the most out of himself. I honestly didn't know how much of a role America had played, not just in his personal life, but in terms of his, you know, his own perception of what he was capable of doing. But I think on the financial side as well, there was New York Times Magazine had a big excerpt of the book, which was, you know, great for great for the book and its exposure, but also I think really they picked the right chapter because that's the one I learned the most reporting, you know, about how Federer built his business side and how much things were kind of hanging in the balance in the early years. He had his first Nike contract. He couldn't even get it renewed anywhere near he thought it should be renewed by his agent, Bill Ryan, because people just weren't sure he was the guy. And uh, they were still thinking, well, maybe it's going to be Andy Roddick. You know, maybe it's going to be Juan Carlos Ferrero. And I know you were working behind the scenes in that era too, so you knew that debate. It was not at all clear that Roger, for all his talent, was going to be the guy who destroyed men's tennis until 2002, 2003 period. So I think all that process, how he became the guy, all the things he had to work on with himself, the people that he chose to work around him, and obviously the death of Peter Carter in 2002, who was his boyhood mentor and helped him build his game. That was huge. I knew that was important, but I don't think I grasped how much of a threat it's been through his whole career and why and who Peter Carter was and what he meant until I researched the book. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that struck me about your book, too, is what you know, one of the things you just mentioned about the sports psychologist, because obviously, you know, we knew the stories about Roger as a teenager. He's a little bit of a hothead. You know, he'd get ticked off. He couldn't control his temper. But uh, I was very interested in that part of the book. And, and what what did you learn from that side of it? Because, I mean, obviously, people who are just now fans of tennis and Feder, of which there are many, as we know, all over the world, you know, look at Roger as just, you know, the, the most incredibly graceful, not only player, but also with his, his attitude, his sportsmanship, and so on. So what, what, how, how did that come about that you've, you found out and learned so much about that side of it with him? Well, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because – I mean, on a totally micro level, and I am not the story here, but I, mean, I know my own, you know, very mediocre college tennis career and junior tennis career, I really struggled with that, with that emotional control. So I've always, as a journalist, been very interested in people who are able to conquer that and be able to deal with that. And because it's not easy. We all know the game is, you know, for perfectionists, there's no perfection available. It'll drive you crazy. And if you don't have that control, uh, you know, maybe as your brother has proven, 
you can use the outburst to your advantage at times as well. But you know, too much negativity and too much self-loathing inevitably is going to be your downfall in tennis, I think. And I think Roger really had an issue with that when he was young. So I really wanted to find out as much as I could about the process and how he did it. And Christian Marcoli, sports psychologist, he hasn't really talked much about it over the years. And he still isn't going to go into detail, I think, at Roger's request about their methods. Mm. But I got to know quite a bit about what um, Christian meant to him and how they connected. And it's an interesting story because really, I think Roger's people during those years of the Swiss National Training Center, people like Peter Carter, people like Peter Lundgren, even Stan Groneveld, who was part of that program, you know, great Dutch coach, many players since then, right now is, uh, is working with Bianca Andrescu. And then his parents, they just felt they couldn't reach him and couldn't help him. And I think Roger felt the same way. So they decided they needed to go outside um, Swiss tennis. They needed to go outside the family and try to find Roger's help to, you know, learn how to manage a situation, to understand it, get some tools in place to help him. And within matches, find a way to, to manage his emotions. And I think Marcoli, uh, Swiss uh, sport did not have a lot of sports psychology at this stage. This is 1998, 1999, this period there. And um, Marcoli was a, a leading professional soccer player, FC Basel, Roger's favorite club. Right, right. His career, his career ended early because of injuries, and he decided to go into sports psychology because he felt like he'd been ill-served during his career by coaches, people not being able to reach that side of it. So he got into it. And I think uh, Peter Carter and Roger read an article about Marcoli's sort of beginning in this business, in a newspaper in Switzerland and decided this was their guy because he was a guy who could relate to Roger. He was pretty young. He played a sport that Roger loved and could have been a pro at, I think, in soccer. And they just sensed that this guy could be uh, the right um, sort of person to reach Roger and help him through this period. He didn't help him all the way. They worked together for a couple of years. They worked on things that I know is, is basic as sort of where do you put your eyes in a tennis match mm. to keep your distraction levels down. You know, uh, focus on the strings. You see Roger picking at his strings. You're keeping his eye contact with the crowd. He used to get distracted a lot. And some of the early stories of Roger of being really, really hard to coach because he was somebody who was just so, so much nervous energy. He just couldn't sit still. He couldn't sit there and listen to you, look, look you eye to eye and talk about the tennis. He wanted to get out there and get in the action. And I think that sort of nervous energy and that uh, uh, desire he had to, just to let it all go it made it hard for him to focus in matches. So they worked on those kind of tools. And I know they talked a lot about, you know, personal things and so where Roger was coming from and, and I think that really helped him kind of put down the first building blocks to being able to solve that problem. And by 2003, it took him about you know five years to do it. And ultimately, one of the things that put him over the top on it, Patrick, was I think watching footage of himself on TV, maybe Eurosport, of a match with Safin in Rome when they're both just you know yelling, shouting, throwing rackets. And I think Roger really hit him then. And Roger cares about how he's perceived. He definitely does. He's mm-hmm. very, you know social person, very much a people person, and he cares about the image he projects. I think he realized, hey, that's going to be me. That's how I'm going to be seen. Is that how I want to be seen? And by then, he had this foundation in place. I think that that, that sort of perception of where he was going to be kind of placed in people's minds come over the edge and allowed him to uh, make the final changes and kind of put that mask, if you will, in place. But I, I'm still convinced he was playing against type, you know, most mm-hmm. of his career. That Zen master approach, I don't think inside that's the way he's feeling. Amazing, because, you know, when you watch him, and I've, I've always marveled throughout his career and his ability to to brush off the devastating defeats, you know, of which he's had a few, right? I mean, he's had, obviously, with this amazing career. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun. 
you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. This episode of Holding Court is being brought to you by True. That's T-R-U, the lifestyle beverage. Absolutely amazing. Go to drinktrue.com to learn more. I suggest you try out the True Sampler, 30% off with the code PATRICK. But you look at, uh, you know, a couple of the losses to Djokovic, obviously getting destroyed by Nadal that one particular time when I think he won four games in the French Open final. Um, and, and I... You know, because over time, you know, watching like my brother when he, he his rivalry with Lendl would be like, okay, John would get the upper hand, and then Lendl would get it, and then you'd, it, you know, it was always like that sense of once someone passes you, you're not going to be able to pass him again. You know, when my brother passed Borg, Borg was like, I'm done, I'm out of here. And even in the in the more current generation, you know, okay, Sampras was the slower, the starters between Courier, Chang, you know, they all won before him, and then once he passed him, it's like, okay, he's going to stay past him. I always amazed me at how Roger and obviously Rafa and, and Novak have been able more so Rafa because Novak just I felt like kept continuing to climb up the ladder you know to catch him and now he's caught him but that those guys would have these devastating losses Roger especially and still be able to bounce back still be able to come back and say ah you know I, I put that by how do you think he was able to do that over the years yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's right. I think that does define this era. Is I, I think tennis used to be like boxing. You know, when the heavyweight was lost his crown, he lost it for good. Kind of was the way it right. was, right? Pretty, pretty rare. Unless you get a guy like Ali where the circumstances were, were different because of what was happening with the loss of the crown. But in tennis, absolutely, that was, it seemed to be the case. It was a game of, uh, kind of regime. And when the regime changed that, it, it stayed that way. But I think actually all three of those guys have pulled it off because Djokovic as well, you know, in 1718 for personal reasons and the injury, he kind of fell off That's the radar true. and then he yep. was able to bounce back. So really all three mm-hmm. of them have had moments where they, in by the old standard would have dipped and not, and not risen again. And they all rose again. So I think it's because of that sort of mutual energy that they're bouncing off each other. But I think in terms of Roger, which is who's the one I know the best, I would say what, what really made that work was the guy really understood how to compartmentalize and how to, get the most out of himself and I think he really came to know himself and there was this underlying love of the process of the game ball on the strings the guys that you know I had an argument with Jim Courier about this once I wouldn't call it argument but a disagreement Jim isn't sure that Roger has much grit and I just think he's got a lot of grit I just don't think you see it and I think the thing that defines it for me is the guy's never retired from a match in his professional career I mean how could you not have a lot of grit and a lot of competitive spirit and fire if that's the case, I mean, it's incredible. Even other players will tell you that's incredible. I'm sure you think the same way. Um, so, you know, I think that's – his situation is 
there's this deep fire inside of him that's burning all the time. He understands himself, compartmentalizes, so he never burned out. He never got to a point where he was as sick of the game like Borg was. And I think a lot of other players over the years have gotten to that stage. He understood when he needed to take his foot off the pedal, get away from the game. He built in a lot of breaks all along. He was super smart about the way he did his physical training with Pierre Paganini. And I think Mirka helped him a huge amount in the sense that she took care of all the stuff that might have been a drain on him and a distraction on him and allowed him to focus on what he really loved and cared about, which was being the best player he could be. And the guy, by all accounts, despite his sensitivity and his, you know, very emotive quality, which separates him from a lot of great male superstar athletes. He wasn't afraid to show that emotion at an early age. I think he was ahead of the curve like that. Mm. Despite that fact, the guy is very resilient. And maybe it's because he's able to evacuate that stuff and move on. But I think he's been able to, you talked to Paul Anacone, which I'm sure you have, about coaching him. That's what blew him away the most, was Rogers' ability to sort of have this brutal defeat, say the Joe Wilford song at Wimbledon, go back to the house in five minutes after his last press conference, and he's playing with his twins on the ground, you know, horsing around just after that and moving on. So I think he's been able to compartmentalize, separate the professional part from the personal part, and even separate the on-court and the off-court stuff to a degree that a lot of top pros, at least in my opinion, have not been able to do. And that's kept him fresh longer. And the fact that those guys came after him pretty early in his career. I mean, Nadal was already there in 04, huh? Yeah. Beat him in Miami. Absolutely. Djokovic won the Aussie Open in 2008, even though he didn't take over the game until 2011. But they were there early. He knew the threat. And so I think that those guys were there challenging him. And only you guys as players would know this, but you know when you're on the court against somebody when they're pushing you to places you don't, you don't want to go. <laughs> you're not comfortable. Right. And I think I think he could sense that with both those guys early on. And I'm sure that held his interest and motivation in a way otherwise it wouldn't have. I remember watching him once uh, early in his career, and I think he was – I believe he was um, – no, I don't believe – I know he was playing Hewitt. I'm trying to remember where it was. Maybe it was Cincinnati. And I remember um, – him just trying to play offense all the time, just, you know, cause he coming in and, and I, I, I had a conversation with him when I was, you know, it was just something to the effect of, um, you know, you might not have to do that, you know, meaning, meaning you might not have to like go all out and be offensive. And I think when, and, and the reason I've thought of this was you mentioned Pierre Paganini is, is fitness guy. And obviously Rogers kept himself, you know, people take for granted his speed and his agility because they just watch him. It looks so easy, but you and I know the, you know, the amount of work he's done, right. For that to happen, to keep that where it was. But I remember when he figured out against Hewitt, well, it's a little bit like what Medvedev just figured out in the U S open final to some extent against Djokovic, which was actually, if I just play a neutral shot, if I play down the middle, if I play more uh, defensive, then this guy's done. And it was like Roger f- started to figure that out. And then because, it, you know, you think of him and you think of all the amazing shot making and the offense. And, but I think of matches like, you know, Baghdadis at the Australian Open final when the guy was kind of out hitting him for a set and a half. And Roger just said, okay, I'm just going to go play defense for a set or two. And that's exactly, and then the whole match turned. And that's how he turned around everything against Hewitt. And that's how when he played Roddick, of course, he would, you know, outserve him at the Wimbledon final. But he would also just kind of, you know, okay, I'm just going to play it, you know, short to your forehand. What are you going to do? And, and I think the fitness side of it, I think, had a lot to do with that because he realized that he could actually just play more predictable, more defensive tennis in addition to doing, you know, the incredible shot making. And when that happened, it, to me, it felt like, okay, 
this guy's going to dominate, which is exactly what happened. No, I think that's great insight. And I also, I don't know how you feel about this, but I mean, I also watched some of his, some of his early matches on the return games. You know, he would, uh, he sliced a lot of returns back. He tried to drive him, but it seemed like his, his strike rate in terms of success of putting the returns back in play early in his career on the backhand side was not that high compared to what it became. He became this master of being able to block that backhand return back deep in a neutral position and kind of reboot the rally. And when you watch it up close, just realizing how big those serves are and how extended that arm is on the one hand, it's just amazing to me to watch that in practice or in a match. But that to me seemed to be a pretty critical shot for him as well as time went on be able to blunt that big serving power. Oh, definitely. And then I think, you know, when he, when he made that amazing turnaround, uh, you know, to beat Rafa in Australia after, after his first uh, break with the knee issue, you know, then he figured out, okay, well, now I'm going to actually have to come over the backhand return a little bit more. I'm going to have to be more aggressive and more Patrick, offensive. Patrick, I lost you. Sorry, man. Oh, you can hear me. Uh, you still there? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I want to cut you out when you're flowing there. Oh, okay. Last no. thing I heard you say – I made my, my, my comment about the, about the backhand return. Yeah, no, what I, I was saying was... was um, I went back to you. Yeah, what I was saying was when he played uh, Rafa, you know, when he, came, when he won the Australian Open after, after being out with his first knee situation, and he started to yep. realize, I've got to play more offensive now on the backhand return, which is exactly what he did. So it's like he, all these guys constantly kept evolving, and certainly they all, as we know, have pushed each other. Um, will he come back? I mean, I, I, I think he's going to try to come back. Do you think he makes another push next year to try to come back and go out on his terms? You know, Roger is an optimist. We all know that. That's one of the reasons why he's lasted so long. You know, when he's talking in his, in his commentary about his decision, you know, a glimmer of hope for him, that's probably the most pessimistic phrase I've ever come out of his mouth. You know? Right, right. When he did that, when he, when, he, about when he did the Instagram video, right. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. yeah. Like, for him to use the phrase glimmer of hope, that tells right. you sort of, kind of minimizing his own chances there. I think that that was quite telling. Does he want to come back and play, you know, pain-free at another Wimbledon? And obviously he was not feeling great this year when he lost to Hercats in the straight set, six love at the third set there. Was definitely diminished. We know that now. You know, I wouldn't blame him. I personally think, you know, I don't, I don't see that much upside at this stage to him doing that. If he comes back, I don't think the, the game's going to stop evolving in his absence. I think uh, these guys are only going to get better, better younger generation. He's not going to get any faster on post-operative knees and you know, 40 years old heading toward 41. But that's what he feels he needs to do for himself uh, to get the satisfaction and the closure that he wants. You know, what the heck? I'm give, give him you know, green light all the way. It's not for us to say. That's for sure. But I do feel like, but I, do feel like uh, I think the odds of him winning another Grand Slam now are, are minimal, minimal. And I, I'm not sure what he'd be playing for. So for that sensation that he's had so many times before, which is communion with the public and you know, being competitive still at the stage he's at, but you know, it's not for us to judge that on the outside. He's got to make that decision himself. Uh, couldn't have been said better. And before I let you go, Christopher, I just got to ask you about um, the U.S. Open. Just your overall thoughts. I mean, I thought it was an an amazing couple of weeks. It was great to see the young players step up. Obviously, on the women's side, get into the final, but even on the men's side, some new. New blood didn't make it all the way to the end, but although Ajay Aliassim got to the semis, but just your your overall takeaway from you know what we were we were all we in the tennis world. I include you uh, right at the top of that list. We're worried. Okay, no Roger, no no uh, Rafa, no v, no Serena and Venus, but uh, you know the tournament had a lot of buzz, didn't it? 
Well, it's a surprising game, isn't it? Because, you know, it's a star-driven sport, and it takes decades to build up those rivalries and that interest and those personalities like, uh, you know, Martina and Chrissy and and um, Roger and Rafa and Novak. You just can't create that kind of uh, depth of understanding from the public or connection quickly. Yeah, that takes a lot of time. So you kind of wonder, okay, there's a, there's a definite void, and there was a void, no Serena either, obviously, at the U.S. Open. Um, but I think the game is surprising. It, those Grand Slam tournaments are amazing shop windows. Mm. They always have this ability to create stars. You need the right storylines, the right sort of situations to arise <laughs> and to occur. But the, but the opportunity is there. The shop is open for business. <laughs> and so in the sense that people are watching these big events, these Grand Slam tournaments, it's not like this happens in Cincinnati, you know, disrespect to Cincinnati or Monte Carlo. Uh, sorry, not the same impact. Happens at the U.S. Open. That's, that is a magnifying glass. And I think the storylines, my goodness, with Novak going for the slam and not making it and sort of becoming you know, a sympathetic figure and not making it, and then these ridiculously good women's stories, uh, just out of the blue, even for me to some degree. I knew Roddy Connie was a talent when she got to the fourth round at Wimbledon. The Brits probably knew it before that, cover tennis. But, I mean, I literally hadn't heard of this player two months ago. And she ripped her the U.S. Open Ten rounds of tennis didn't lose a set and look great. So that that can happen. One time it's happened to me in my career before was you know Gustavo Kirten at the French Open 1997 when he ran through the draw, beat all the Musters and former French Open champs and won the title and couldn't have been cooler doing it. So it doesn't happen very often, but boy, the timing on this one when the sport really needed that shot on the arm and that bit of uh, hope for the future, I mean, it couldn't have been better. And I guess that's the power of tennis and the power of the Grand Slams. Yep. But I also feel like uh, the city deserved it, and the sport deserved it. It's been through a lot the last year and a half, and the city's been through a lot with New York. And I just feel like that that whole tournament, yeah, there were some moments, a <laughs> hurricane that felt like a hurricane that blasted through the first week. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, some of the stuff that happened with, you know, Naomi Osaka and the sadness after her defeat to uh, Fernandez, that's tough to see. But I felt like what a tournament full of hope and optimism. And, I, and that was just the city, after last year, empty sounds, canned uh, applause, you know, just tough to take and tough to watch. What a, what a resurgent thing. It was a breath of fresh air, as is your book, The Master, Christopher Clary's book on Roger Federer. You got to pick it up. It's a number one New York Times bestseller, which, you know, it, for, for a book on, I mean, I know he's Roger and I know you're you, Chris, but for a book on tennis, that's pretty damn awesome is what I have to say. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I would say I would do it with uh, Rogers. Uh, people want to look back on his career. It's not that much to do with the writer, but it's great the timing worked out. But I got to tell you, Patrick, before I lose you, the thing is funny, man, when you and I were talking about, talking about getting together and doing this, I mean, the first time I really realized how good Roger was, I actually went to Basel, Switzerland in 2001, Davis Cup first round, which I believe was your first mm -hmm. uh, time That's as right. captain of the right. U.S. team. So I went to go write about Patrick McEnroe becoming the captain <laughs> of the U.S. team. So much for that. And a little Todd Martin, a little Jan Michael right. Gamble, and all that sort of stuff. Right. And I had a revelation. Obviously, I'd seen him play before, but I had no idea how, how great he was or how great he could be until that, that week of tennis. And I, know, I think you probably felt sort of the same way, or am I not wrong I, about I'll that? tell you what, what I remember more than anything, believe it or not, was in the doubles match. Okay, he had already won the singles on day one easily. Then he was playing doubles. And I'll never forget, Chris, he crossed on a ball, and it wasn't an easy ball in the volley. And he just he put this sort of 
slice on the volley, you know, to make it die because the, the, the American guys uh, were coming forward to try to get it, and the ball just died. And I never mm. seen anybody put that kind of, you know, it's like in golf. They say, look at all the English, you know, on a chip shot that hit, you know, hit it and it spins back. And I was like, I've never seen anybody put that kind of work on the ball ever. And I'm like, and I remember saying something, this guy, this is another level. I mean, this is a mm. whole another deal. And Roddick was, was on the practice, was, was, was like the fourth guy at that point. And already at that point, because, you know, we had, um, you know, Martin who played and, uh, gamble and I'm sitting there going, man. I mean, how how much of an idiot am I am by not playing Roddick? And then Roddick actually came in be, uh, and played the dead rubber because Roger clinched it, at, it to make it three one on the final day, and we put Roddick in, um, and he was you know as you know a year younger than Roger, but they knew each other, and because Roddick knew what he was seeing, I mean he knew this guy. And he came out in the dead rubber, which for those of you who don't follow tennis is like the meaningless match when the, when the overall tie, we call it, in Davis Cup has been decided for Switzerland. Like he was so fired up because he was like, I know this is a guy I'm going to be playing against. And Roger was watching on the other bench going, you know, how come he didn't play me kind of thing. And, of course, mm. they, you know, they ended up having – but it was, it was watching a few of his shots, and I said to myself – Holy mackerel. And then I remember when he won that first Wimbledon in 2003. You'll, you remember him well. Alan Mills was out on the, on the uh, little terrace there, you know, where the players uh, sit, you know, by, the, by the, the grass there, by the player restaurant. And he was out there having his cigarette at the end of the tournament. And I said, and I walked past, you know, it was an hour or two after the final ended. I said, Alan, what would you think about this guy Federer? I said, how many of these is he going to win? And he said, looked at me straight, and then I took a puff on his cigarette. As many as he wants. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was pretty darn close there. It was pretty darn close. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not everyone that he wanted, but he sure he got, he got quite, yeah, a, quite a few. He got quite sure. a few. Exactly. Well, you keep up the great work, Chris, and thank you for all you, you, you've done and do for tennis because uh, having a voice like yours that gets it uh, is unusual, as we know, in this country that actually covers tennis legitimately week in, week out. So we appreciate it. Great job on the book. And uh, I will see you very shortly at the Labor Cup up in your uh, hometown. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, you're, you're, you're a tough inquisitor. So I'm, I'm going to try to beat this <laughs> stuff on you the next time. Yeah, remember that next time you call me looking for a quote. Yeah, I'm right. All right. Chris Clary, everyone, and his great book, The Master, on holding court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.